That's a gift of grace that we do not deserve at all. We recognize there is nothing that we can do to earn your favor. There is no amount of good works or religious activities, Lord, that can justify us in your sight, that can give us that confidence. But we have confidence because of Jesus. We thank you that because of Jesus, we have the ability to come as your children, your sons and your daughters, that we don't have to fear condemnation, that we don't have to fear judgment, that even death has lost the fear and the, that it could grip us. So, Lord, we thank you that you uh, give us hope. And now in this time that we have together this morning, we pray that you will give us an increasing understanding of what you've done down through history to bring people back to you. Lord, we thank you for men and women down through history who have been faithful to you, stood up to opposition, who have helped recover the focus on Jesus and on the Bible. And I pray that as we learn more, that it will not merely be head knowledge, but that we will learn um, how to uh, worship you more and to make you known in more effective ways as we understand you better. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we look down through human history, there are certain periods of time that are really transformational in terms of the direction of the future. I think, for instance, that back in the 1700s, you had the Declaration of Independence and the American Revolution. That was a time that shaped the future where, if not for those events, we would not be the United States of America today. Or I think of back in the mid-1800s with the Civil War that abolished slavery and united the North and the South. Those events shaped the course of American history. Or more recently, I think of the influence of computers and the internet, of cell phones and social media, and how I believe that in the future, when historians look back in the early 2000s, they will see this as an era of technological revolution that reshaped pretty much every part of society. You know, these are all pivotal events in history that disrupt the status quo and propel society in new directions. The same can be said about many different events down through church history. I think, for instance, of the most foundational event, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that reshaped the direction of all of human history since then. I think that's the pivotal event of all of human history. But there are other pivotal events as well. I think of 300 years later, when the Emperor Constantine, the Emperor of the Roman Empire, he legalized Christianity throughout the empire. And that ended up reshaping the entire Western world from then on. Today we are studying an event called the Reformation that took place in the 1500s. And that too has radically shaped the direction of history. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Last week we looked at a crash course of church history all the way from the time of Jesus up until the 1500s. And today we're zooming in on that century of the 1500s. And as I said last week, the, the time leading up to the Reformation was a time of, of, of a lot of turmoil in European society. There were famines. There was the Black Death that killed about 40% of European uh, society. You had wars. You had various uprisings and revolts among the people. And so it was a time of a lot of turmoil. And the same was the case within the Catholic Church, which at that time was the church in Europe. We talked last week about chaos at the very highest levels of the church within the papacy. 
We talked about uh, clergy misconduct and, and rampant immorality within the clergy across the board in the Catholic Church at that point. And so in the centuries leading up to the Reformation, there were many different calls to reform the activities of the church. But by and large, those calls for reform fell on deaf ears. But then in the early 1500s, those calls for reform began to gain traction, especially through a man named Martin Luther. Martin Luther, when he was 21 years old, was caught in a terrible thunderstorm, and he was terrified. And so he prayed to St. Anne, who was the supposed grandmother of Jesus, and he prayed to St. Anne, saying that if he was able to get through that thunderstorm safely, he would become a monk. Kind of like a bargain that he made. And he followed through on that. He became a very dedicated monk. He lived in a monastery, dedicated himself wholeheartedly to all the rituals of being a monk in that monastery. Now, Martin Luther was a man who took very seriously his sin and God's holiness. Because of this, he was filled with a lot of anxiety because he recognized that, that he is very sinful in the sight of God. And he was filled with anxiety of, you know what? Do I really have what it takes to please God? What if my sin is too much for God to accept me? And, and he was filled with this anxiety and with this fear. And so he worked harder and harder and harder trying to earn God's favor. Years later, as he reflected on his years as a monk, he said that if ever a monk could get to heaven by his monkery, it was I. If ever a monk could get to heaven by his monkery, by working hard as a monk, doing the right things, he said, I was that person who could get to heaven by how hard I worked as a monk. He was very dedicated. And a few years later, he was appointed as professor of the Bible at the University of Wittenberg in Germany. So his life became dedicated to studying and teaching the scriptures. And that would play a very important role as things unfolded in the Reformation. Now, while he was teaching at the University of Wittenberg, a very pivotal event took place right there in Wittenberg. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, let me give some key background to understanding what took place. And the key background is related to relevant Catholic beliefs. Now, I think it's important to clarify, uh, knowing that a lot of you do have Catholic backgrounds. Catholicism is very prevalent in this part of the country. I think it's important that as we look at this topic of Catholicism, that we do so with respect, and also that I'm striving to do so with accuracy. I spent a significant amount of time during my sabbatical in July and August digging in to the, to the beliefs and practices of Roman Catholicism, and I have to say I truly enjoyed that study. And it's not going to do any good as we look at some of the differences. It's not going to do any good to be rude or disrespectful or demeaning or arrogant about these differences that we see, but it's also not going to do any good to be superficial about the differences. So we want to be honest about differences between Catholicism and Protestant belief, but we also want to be respectful in that process, and that's a, a manner of, of speaking and an attitude that I desire to have throughout this series. But it's important that we understand some of these Catholic beliefs uh, in order to uh, understand what was taking place in the Reformation. So one key belief, then and now, is the idea of purgatory. Purgatory is seen as a place of temporary suffering in order to purify people so they can achieve the holiness necessary to enter heaven. So it's a place of temporary suffering 
to purify people, to get their sin, to purge the sin. That's why it's called purgatory. It purges the sin from them so they will achieve the level of holiness required to enter heaven. So purgatory in the Catholic belief system is not heaven and it's not hell. It's a middle ground because, because we have a level of sin, according to this belief system, that needs to be purified even still after death. And in Catholic theology, very few people go directly to heaven after they die. Most in the Catholic belief system go to purgatory. The only people who can go straight to heaven after they die in this belief system are the saints. And so purgatory is this place to be, to be really punished for our sins because in this belief system, we, we are saved and we, we receive forgiveness by God's grace, but there is still a punishment to be paid for our sins. And, and purgatory is where that punishment is paid and our sins are purged from us. And purgatory in this belief system is temporary. Once you have paid the punishment for your sins, you can graduate and go to heaven. But purgatory is still not a happy or desirable place to be. And so every effort would be made to decrease the amount of time that you or your loved ones would have to spend in purgatory. And the way that you do that, one of the key ways, is through what are called indulgences. And indulgence is a means of reducing a person's time in purgatory. And so what indulgences are, are they are uh, specific actions prescribed by the Catholic Church they are designed to, to earn favor in God's sight, to, to basically get credit in God's sight called merits in order to reduce the amount of time that you would have to spend in purgatory. And examples of indulgences that can reduce your time or other people's time in purgatory are that you can pray for the dead, or you can dedicate a mass to them. You can serve other people through acts of mercy. You can give money to help those in need. You can go to a Catholic shrine or a relic and pay homage there. You could pray a certain prayer called the Hail Mary. These are all examples of things you can do to earn indulgences. And again, an indulgence is this idea of, of, of a credit. Specifically, it's called a merit that can be applied either to you or to other people who are already in purgatory to reduce the amount of time spent there in purgatory. And that's the cool thing if you subscribe to this belief system that you can actually reduce other people's time in purgatory who've already died, who are there currently. And the way you can do this is that Catholic theology teaches that the Catholic Church has the spiritual treasury of merit that has been stored up through the years. And what has happened is that, you know, ordinary people like probably all of us, if, if we believe in this belief system, have not accumulated enough spiritual merits through our good works and stuff uh, to get all the way to heaven. So we'd spend time in purgatory. But there are some who have gone straight to heaven, and those specifically are Jesus and Mary and the saints. Jesus, Mary, and the saints, according to this belief system, have accumulated enough merits not only to get themselves to heaven, but then they have excess merits as well that go into this, this treasury of merits that then can be dispensed by the church to benefit those who are suffering in purgatory. And so that is something that an indulgence could do, is help people who are already in purgatory. And again, these are, are Catholic beliefs. Um, had a few questions after the first service. Um, I mean, here at Freedoms, we do not believe in purgatory or indulgences, just to make that clear. But it's important that we understand this background because both purgatory and indulgences played a key role 
in the Reformation, especially the flashpoint that caused the Reformation to really take off. So in the, 15, in the 1300s and 1400s, the Catholic Church began to expect that when someone would receive an indulgence, which was uh, this, this spiritual favor to help reduce someone's time in purgatory, that then they would respond in gratitude by giving a financial contribution to the church. So it was to be a response of gratitude. You, you received a benefit, so, so, you, so you show your gratitude by giving some finances to the church. But it was just a very short step from giving uh, an offering out of gratitude to actually beginning to sell indulgences. And um, that's what happened in the early 1500s because the Catholic Church was rebuilding what is called St. Peter's Basilica. It's in the Vatican. It's still there today. It's like the crown jewel of the Vatican. They were doing a fundraising process to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica. And a big part of the fundraising process was selling indulgences. It was basically a capital campaign that had spiritual benefits that when you give, hey, you can actually help, you can accumulate favor from God as you give. So, well, at least on the surface, it sounded kind of nice. So, so you had the selling of indulgences. And in Wittenberg, where Martin Luther was teaching at this university, there was a monk named Johann Tetzel who was leading the sale of indulgences in Wittenberg. But Johann Tetzel went a little bit far in his, in, in his uh, practices and how he was selling the indulgences. He would stand out in public places day by day and call out things like this. He would say, When the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So hey, you give some money, you can help someone get out of purgatory. Or how about this? Place a penny on the drum, and the pearly gates open, and in strolls mum. And so if you give some money, hey, your mom who's, who's suffering in purgatory, if you give enough, she could probably be freed to go to heaven. How about this one? Don't you hear the voices of your wailing dead parents? I mean, hearing it today, I mean, it sounds kind of bad. And in fact, I read one historian who called it emotional blackmail. Luther did not like this idea either. So Luther's basic question, his basic concern about what he saw taking place right in his own town was this idea of, doesn't selling indulgences cheapen repentance? Because he'd been studying the Bible and repentance in the Bible is a big deal. But if selling indulgences really works, basically it's a business transaction. that You pay, pay some money, you purchase then forgiveness from God. And he said that is not right. And so Luther, if you know anything about Luther, you know he was a passionate man. He was not afraid to make his voice and opinion known. And so he began to write down some of his concerns on paper. And that became the turning point of the Reformation. Now, to give you a little bit more history, every year, November 1st in the Catholic Church is called All Saints Day. On All Saints Day, it's a day to commemorate those saints who are already in heaven. All Saints Day, November 1st, everyone was expected to go to church on All Saints Day. So Martin Luther, on All Saints Eve, which was October 31st of 1517, decided to post these 95 objections or concerns about what he observed in the sale of indulgences posted on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. You can still go there today and see that door, and now it's all like roped off and stuff like that because it's this historic place. Uh, but that door you see up there on the left, uh, on the right, is where Luther nailed the 95 theses. That's what they became called later 
But Luther, as he posted these objections and concerns up on that door, he was not trying to start a revolution. Remember, he was a university professor who had some concerns, and he wanted to have a debate that would hopefully lead to some changes in this practice of selling indulgences. He wanted to have an academic debate. This week, I, I read the 95 Theses. I'm, I probably read them at some point in the past, but I didn't remember how underwhelming they really are when you look at it from a current Protestant perspective. Because quite frankly, when you look at the 95 Theses, I was kind of going into it expecting to read uh, things about justification by faith, about how you know, it's, salvation comes by faith and grace, not by good works. Or I expected to read things about the authority of the Bible. But those things aren't in the 95 Theses. Instead, you read about Martin Luther, who, who is t- um, talking well about the Pope in there. He's supporting the beliefs in purgatory and the indulgences. What he's writing about instead is trying to just to curb some of the abuses of indulgences that were taking place in terms of the selling of indulgences. That's why the official title that he gave it at that point was called Disputation on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. Disputation is an academic debate, and you understand the power. Efficacy means the effectiveness he didn't like what was going on in the selling of indulgences, so he, he raised a, a little protest, but it was really trying to convene an academic debate to try to get some changes, some reform in the practice of selling indulgences. That's what he was trying to do. He was not trying to be a revolutionary who was declaring independence from the Catholic Church. Instead, he was a professor, a theologian, who just wanted to correct some problematic practices. But things did not stay there. Instead, what happened was a drawing of battle lines for the Reformation. There were two groups who took specific notice of the 95 Theses. One group was the common people in Germany. Printers, you know, printing presses have been around for a number of decades at that point. Printers in Wittenberg got a hold of the 95 Theses. They made a bunch of copies of them and then distributed them throughout Germany and beyond. And Martin Luther very quickly became this kind of popular hero. I mean, you think about athletes today, when they walk around, everyone's trying to swarm them and get their picture and their autograph. You think about in the movie Braveheart, you have William Wallace. I mean, he's this popular folk hero um, with the people in Scotland at that point for leading them to independence and in that process and all that. Martin Luther was that type of figure where people were just swarming to him. They were enthralled by his challenge of the Catholic Church. And so people loved Martin Luther, the commoners did, but, but the church did not like him very much at all. I mean, they went in the complete opposite directions. They really despised him. And the first Catholic response to the 95 Theses came from Johann Tetzel, who was the salesman of indulgences in Wittenberg. And his basic point was, well, Luther was a heretic, so we need to burn him at the stake. And that was frequently how uh, people who opposed the church were treated at that point. You know what? Execute them. Get rid of them. So Luther's life was very much in danger at this point. Um, But thankfully, he had the support of the common people. But also, he had the support uh, of a very powerful ruler in that part of Germany whom the Pope really wanted to please. So Martin Luther amazingly stayed alive. And on top of that, in in the coming years, there became this theological debate, and a bunch of different debates took place, and also there was this propaganda war 
between people like Martin Luther and the Catholic Church. Martin Luther knew well how to use printing presses as his ally to, to spread um, his ideas in that time. And one of the things that happened a couple years after the 95 Theses was what I would call the retrieving of the gospel. You remember how when Martin Luther was a monk, he was very fearful of, of God's judgment. He recognized his sin and God's holiness, and he knew that, that, that he stands condemned. And, and this scared him to death. But there was one passage as he was studying Romans chapter 1 that was a light bulb moment for him. And that passage is Romans 1, 16 and 17. I invite you to follow along as I read it. The Apostle Paul wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so this word gospel here in these two verses means good news. But for Luther, in the past, as he had read these two verses, he only saw bad news because he read about the righteousness of God. And the common interpretation that day was that this righteousness of God is talking about God's perfect moral standard that we will never live up to. And so when, when Luther read about the righteousness of God that's being revealed, he is thinking, you know what? I am condemned. There is no way I can face judgment before the holy God. So he saw it as a sentence of condemnation, bad news. But then, in 1519, two years after he posted the 95 Theses, he read this in a new light. And he realized that what it's actually talking about is the righteousness of God that comes as good news because it's the righteousness that God gives to us. We can't earn it, but he gives it to us as a free gift of grace that we receive by faith, not by hard work and, and religious activities. It's received by faith. And that enables us to stand before God without condemnation because he declares us righteous due to what Jesus did through his life, death, and resurrection. We've been singing about this this morning already, especially in that song, In Christ Alone. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. This is something that Luther had never understood before, no, nor did um, most other um, people there in Europe at the time. So this was a breakthrough moment for him where the gospel was really recovered and retrieved. And this brought Luther incredible joy, incredible peace, and it became a hallmark of the rest of his ministry and of the Reformation. So it's important to recognize that when we look at the theology of the Reformation, it didn't just come out, I mean, fully clothed and ready to go right from the get-go. It was developed over a period of time. And in that time, as Luther began to understand more uh, as he studied Scripture, as he talked with other reformers, he was writing more and more books. He argued, for instance, that ordinary Christians have the right to read the Bible for themselves. To us, that sounds commonplace. To them, that was revolutionary. And he argued that not only that, but Christians, as they read the Bible, if they see some aspect of the church that is not aligned with Scripture— Christians have the responsibility to call the church to account, to ask the church to get realigned with Scripture. Martin Luther also argued that grace is available directly from God, not just through the ministries of the Catholic Church. He also argued that to be made right in God's sight, it comes through faith, not by good works. 
And these were all revolutionary things back then that increased the tensions of what was taking place. And so in 1521, things came together. I call it kind of the biggest of the big guns in the Roman Empire aligned against Luther. You see the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Charles V, called Luther to come give testimony, be put on trial before him, the emperor, and before the pope. Two most powerful men in Europe at that time. Luther was to give testimony before them, to be on trial for what he was teaching. And that took place at what is called the Diet of Worms. And when you read it up there, what does it look like? Diet of Worms. That's what it looks like in English and German. It's actually the Diet of Worms. A Diet was a, a governmental assembly, a go- governmental meeting. Worms was, uh, and still is, a city in Germany. And so it's a governmental meeting, this meeting in the city of Worms, Germany. And in there, Luther was called before the, the emperor and before the pope on trial for what he had been teaching. And when he got there, all the books that he'd written were laid out on the table, and he was asked to recant of all of his beliefs and teaching and to, to really disavow everything that he had ever said and written. Now, he wasn't prepared for this, and he was pretty timid, kind of, perhaps a little bit intimidated on that day. So he asked if he may have some time to consider what his response will be. And so he was given a day. The next day, uh, this, this group reconvened, and on that day he came in with boldness and with confidence. And this is what he proclaimed. He said, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot... And I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. So what he's saying is, this is my authority, the Bible. I have done and written and taught what I believe the Bible is saying, and he's saying I can't do any other. Here I stand. And that was a dangerous stance. I mean, the likely outcome of that type of stance was immediate execution. Now, through an amazing series of events, Luther somehow survived, and the Reformation from that point erupted throughout Europe. It was, it was really quite chaotic in those early decades, in the 20s and 30s of the 1500s. One of my favorite descriptions of that time says this. It says, German society jumped on the reforming horse and galloped off in all directions at once. You think about, I mean, sounds kind of chaotic right there, but that's essentially what happened in Europe. It was like a dam had broken, and it was chaos. But a landmark landmark accomplishment took place in 1522 when Martin Luther translated the New Testament into German. He accomplished his goal of getting the Bible into the hands of the common people to read and study for themselves. Now, the reformers had a major task ahead of them. It was a task of building a new church. Now, this idea of building a new church is not just about a church building. It was about building an entire new way of doing church. I think it's important to recognize that that Martin Luther never intentionally left the Catholic Church. He was kicked out by the Pope, as were other reformers at the time, because there were many others who came in the wake of Luther— They were kicked out of the church, and now they had to figure out a new way to do church based, ideally, as much as possible on Scripture. And I think it's important to recognize there were significant differences between the Reformers and their teachings and in in their practices. Many of these differences persist to this day. 
But keeping our focus on Luther, he, he really did a lot to try to reform what church would be like. He wrote a new liturgy that was based on the Bible, basically trying to make the liturgy of the church teach the Bible. He wrote a new catechism to teach people doctrine. He introduced congregational singing in the church, which was revolutionary at that time. He wrote hymns, and he restructured the entire way that church operates. Now, our focus throughout the study today has been primarily on Luther, and rightly so, because he was the human catalyst who got the Reformation going. But I came across a very interesting perspective in, in a book I was reading called The History of of the Catholic Church. And let me read this for us. It said, If the Protestant Reformation had not been set off by Luther, it would have occurred in a different place around the same time. A classic illustration of the maxim that nothing is so powerful as an idea whose time has come. Now, what to me was especially remarkable was that this was coming from a Catholic scholar and it was published by a Catholic publishing house but it's saying, it's Catholics saying, you know what? Circumstances were such at that time that a reformation was inevitable. Whether Luther started or someone else, a reformation was inevitable. And so what happened through this reformation, as we look at Christianity's family tree, is that a new branch came off that family tree. Last week we saw how in 1054, you had a division between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. And now off the Catholic Church is coming another branch of the Protestant church. And that is what Freedens is. Pretty much if someone is Christian today and is not Orthodox, is not Catholic, they are probably Protestant. Another branch in the Christianity's family tree. Now I want to look briefly at the Catholic response in the 1500s. Because they didn't take all this Reformation sitting down. But it took them several decades before they were able to organize an official response. In part because of bureaucracy and because of, of politics within the clergy. But also, it's hard to mount any sort of cohesive response to a movement that is constantly changing and is incredibly diverse like the Reformation was. But an official response came through what is known as the Council of Trent, which took place from 1545 to 1563. This, this meeting of church leaders in the Catholic Church that they met many different times through the course of those years. And they offered an official response to the Reformation. One of the aspects of the Council of Trent was that they corrected poor practices within the church. Especially they, they outlawed the sale of indulgences. They recognized, okay, yes, that is wrong. They, they cleaned up a lot of clergy uh, malpractice and misconduct. So those were some very good things that took place. They also clarified Catholic doctrine. A couple of the specific doctrines that they clarified were that from their perspective, spiritual authority, ultimate authority, comes from both Scripture and from tradition. They are equal levels of spiritual authority. Also, they clarified their teaching that salvation comes not by faith alone, but by faith plus works. And so there is a clarification of Catholic teaching there. And in addition to that, there are over a hundred anathemas. Anathema is a Greek word that means let them be accursed or let them be condemned. So they're declarations of condemnation. And so what happened there was that now, they identified a bunch of different ideas and beliefs they thought were heresy. And they pronounced an anathema on each one of those. So they would basically say, okay, if someone believes this, let them be anathema. Let them be a curse. Let them be condemned or cut off from God. And a significant portion of those anathemas were focused specifically on theology that came from the Reformers. 
And I think it's important to acknowledge that the way that we interpret all these different events in the Reformation will be significantly shaped by our perspective, especially how sympathetic we are to either the Catholic Church or to Protestant beliefs. But through this all, I think we need to celebrate getting back to the Bible and getting back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to recognize that, that, that it's not so much about following a specific church. Ideally, church is designed to be a place to help us to grow as followers of Christ and honor God in this world. But we are not ultimately followers of a church. We are called, all of us, to be followers of Jesus as he is revealed in Scripture and through the gospel. And so that is an important thing to keep in mind. We'll be getting more into um, theology in the coming weeks and how this applies to us specifically today. It'll be interesting to see even how some of these themes of the Reformation, like the focus on the gospel and the focus on the Bible, actually did influence the Catholic Church in the following years as well. But in closing, earlier I mentioned that Martin Luther wrote a number of hymns. His most well-known hymn was called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It was really kind of the battle hymn of the Reformation. It is based on Psalm 46, and it celebrates God's supreme sovereign power over anything and everything that opposes him, whether here on earth or in spiritual powers, that God is the victor. And it celebrates the confident hope that we can have through Jesus. And back in the 1500s, this song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, it was sung in Protestant churches. It was sung as well at times in Catholic churches against the protests of the priests, but you would have some reform-minded Catholics who gravitated to that song, and they would sing it even as the priests protested. It was sung by the people out in the streets. As, as Reformation leaders would go into meetings or as they would go into debates with Catholic leaders, the people would gather out there and serenade them, the, the Reformation leaders, with a mighty fortress is our God. I heard this morning from Scott Varanius, who, who knows quite a bit about the Reformation. He said one of uh, the men who came a little bit after Luther, when, when things got kind of tricky and challenging, he would say, let's sing number 46. Remember the psalm that, that Mighty Fortress is based on? Psalm 46. They would sing that to really bolster their courage. As Protestant martyrs were being burned at the stake, they would sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And the words and the melody of, of the song, I think, really embody the character of Martin Luther himself. Like, like Luther, the song is bold, is confident, it's defiant in the face of opposition, and on top of that, it declares that the supreme hope is in God and in Jesus. Now, we're going to close our service today by singing the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing it just as a reminder of the heritage and of the celebration that we have that, you know what, Jesus is victorious. Nothing can ultimately stand against God. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a solid rock, a mighty fortress that we can take refuge in, even in the midst of opposition, in the midst of trials in this life. We thank you for people like Martin Luther. We thank you for many others down through the years who win things that got off course with your people, with the church that you have so worked through individuals, even in the face of opposition, to lead us back to the truth. Lord, I pray that you will help us each to stand on the truth, just like Martin Luther said, that, that here I stand. I can do no other. I, my, my conscience is bound to the word of God. May, Lord, may we stand on the authority of Scripture. 
May we rejoice in the hope that comes through Christ and Christ alone so that we don't have to fear condemnation. We don't have any fear of purgatory because Jesus has won the victory and passes on to us through faith. So we thank you, Lord, for this victory that you share with us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.